0: Thanks. Um, Yeah, I feel the same. Uh, A lot of the whys we don't know and imagine for the people of Israel they knew much much less than we do now. This is the third in a series. We're doing a series called Foundations and uh, what the object is is to take themes of the Bible and to follow them through the Bible. So you remember, or you may remember a few weeks ago, uh, Jordan spoke, where else would we start but on the subject of God? And if you you didn't happen to be here that day, that was chock full of some really foundational truths about God. So i suggest if you haven't been there, go back on YouTube, have a look at that. Um, Sean, a couple of weeks ago, um, followed up by talking about creation and starting at Genesis chapter 1. Again, some great insights. He had some very good insights into... Uh, the facts of creation but the fact that today, the fact that we don't acknowledge God as creator, society doesn't acknowledge a creator, how that blossoms out in a whole load of um, different problems and issues that we see around us. So again if you didn't listen to Sean's talk a couple of weeks ago it's available there on YouTube, have a listen to it. Today uh, the theme is uh, temple. So where do you start in the Bible with temple? Uh, well some people start at Eden, they say Eden was the first temple. Uh, and I've, I've read the arguments on both sides, people hold, hold different views. Uh, well I think we're safer if we go in fact to the, to the tabernacle, to the clip that you've seen there. That's the first building where God chose to dwell. I hope you've got your Bibles with you because I'd like you to open them if you would, or your phones, to Exodus chapter 25. While you're doing that I'll give you some history for those who aren't Uh, so aware. I'll do a shortened history because we haven't got all day to to talk about that. But let's just say that God has a a special friend called Abraham and he decides that Abraham and his descendants will be his people. Uh, Eventually that people grow to about two million people, they end up in Egypt through a variety of circumstances, they're there for 400 years but the last few years haven't been good. The last few years they're in slavery to the people of Egypt, they cry out to God and he saves them. He sends 10 plagues, Uh, because Pharaoh's reluctant to let them go. They go across the Red Sea and then there's a quick quick route really from Egypt where God takes them out to where he's taking them which is the Promised Land. A very quick route, just a few days, but instead God takes them right down to the base of the Sinai Peninsula to a place called Mount Sinai and there he talks to the people about what's involved in being his covenant people. And so he gives Moses the Ten Commandments. And this is uh, part of the discussion, Exodus chapter 25, where, where God tells Moses something he would like them to do. He says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. This is the contribution which you are to raise from them gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet material, fine linen goat hair, ram skins dyed red, porpoise skins, acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and setting stones for the ephod and the breastpiece. Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. According to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its, its furniture, just so you shall construct it. So yes, this, this first building was called, it's called in the Bible, it's a Bible word really, tabernacle. You don't find if you're in secular society the word tabernacle is thrown around that much. Uh, and that's because that word, it was brought into the English Bible from the Latin Bible, and tabernaculum just means tent. Wouldn't have been easier if they just said tent. Uh, that's what it was. It was a tent, and, but in Hebrew, the word that's actually translated tabernacle or tent means dwelling place. And you wonder why that is? Because God has said, I want to dwell with you people. I'm gonna talk about that a bit later, but there's some other things that we should note about that little um, paragraph there. The first is, I thought to myself, we've talked about creation, God was able to create the world, the universe, the entire universe. Surely he could have created a temple for himself. Surely he didn't need people to go out and collect these various items and put them together into this place. So there must have been a reason, mustn't there? There must have been a reason where God says, I want you to contribute, first of all, gold and precious stones, but if you didn't have that, if you were a poorer person, oil or whatever it was, uh, to make a contribution towards the temple. And also to construct those various bits and pieces, because this was gonna be something, don't know if you noticed on there, but it was be something that would be dismantled and then put back together again. So as it turned out, it was about 40 years they were wandering around that wilderness of of Sinai and it would have to be packed up when they moved to the next place and then reassembled. And I figure it's maybe like uh, when a mum takes a daughter in the kitchen and says, we're going to make a a cake. And she she says, I'm not going to make it, I want you to make it. Why do we do that? Or or we take a child out and we say, we we need to change the tyre. I'll show you what to do and you do it. Because we learn a great deal, don't we, from actually doing something rather than being told about it. And so I'm sure as they thought about it, they were asking the same kind of questions that Rod was asking. Why gold? Why so much gold? That seems very lavish. Why the silver in these bits? And why the bronze here? And why are we doing this? But I think what it would have done is certainly uh, indicated to them the the glory of God, the the holiness with which he was to be um, viewed. And if you read through, as I've done, and probably you, if you've started at Genesis chapter 1 this year, you'll have read through uh, Numbers and Leviticus, and you see that there is rule after rule after rule after rule for how these things were to be approached. Even this um, equipment here couldn't just be taken down by anyone. There were special people that were designated to do it. No one could go into that tent. Not just anyone could go into that tent. In fact, they, if they went in, uh, even if they were a temple worker, if they weren't a priest they could not look upon that furniture and they would have been killed. That's how serious uh, it was and how God viewed his worship to be done just so. And also a contribution was required and uh, this is another feature of the Bible, as they left Egypt uh, they had some unpaid wages because they'd been working there as slaves for a while. So God made sure that before they left um, the people of Egypt were so uh, happy to see them go that they loaded them down With gold and silver and other implements and so just as in our life God gives us a whole load of stuff and then he asks that we make a contribution and he doesn't make us make a contribution he didn't say I want this from you and that from you although later kings did God said everyone whose heart impels him that's also a a feature of God there is more happiness in giving than receiving Certainly the gold, when we think about uh, that, was, was beautiful. There's a verse which uh, struck me. This is the, um, the inside. You can see the coverings pulled back. Maybe go back to that just for a second. You can see it was beautiful and it was intricate. There was amazing engraving and embroidery and precious materials. And this verse uh, really caught my eye uh, in relation to things to do with the priest that worked in the temple. It said, You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. And for glory and for beauty these things would be made and i couldn't help observe but that's what we observe around us in the world isn't it the things are done for functional reasons the way the, the birds uh, do their thing and the bees pollinate and the trees are grown and the flowers but aren't they beautiful isn't that an indication of the the beauty and the aesthetic quality of our god he's just not a utilitarian god he's a beautiful god and he makes beautiful things and so what happened is they constructed this uh, tabernacle together, and then at the end of it, um, God's presence filled that place. A cloud filled that place so much so that no one could go anywhere near it. And then the, the, this cloud formed above the tabernacle. And the idea was that they would be led by God. So it wasn't as if they were traveling from place to place. In fact, what would happen is that cloud would lift, and when the cloud lifted, the people knew that they were, they were leaving. And one of the verses uh, in Numbers uh, chapter 9, it says this, it sounds very colloquial like what we might say today, whether it was two days, a month or a year that the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel remained camped there and did not set out. But when it was lifted, they did. They didn't know. They woke up in the morning, the cloud was lifted, they were on their way. They could have been there a day, they could have been there a year. But again, I guess the idea of that is that God was going to dwell with them but the fact is that God was gonna lead them. And God, they expected, uh, God expected them to have faith and follow him. So this, uh, just to give you a, a brief bit of history, this wasn't the only temple. Uh, that temple lasted, um, the tabernacle lasted about a 1,000 years. And then King David says, it doesn't seem fair that I'm living in a solid house and God is living in this tent, so I'm gonna build a building. And uh, for various reasons, God said, no, well, you, you gather the stuff, but in fact, your son will build it. This is Solomon's temple, and it was much bigger. You notice the furniture in the first place, There was just one place of washing, one labor. Here, there's five. In the original tabernacle, there was one lampstand. Here, there's 10. In the original tabernacle, there's no windows. Here, there's windows. So this is a bit of an embellishment uh, on and what God uh, intended in the first place. So Solomon's temple was there for about 400 years and then uh, because of Israel's unfaithfulness, God sent some people called the Babylonians and again Israel was taken away into a foreign land for 70 years. Then they came back, one of the first things they wanted to do was build a temple. We have no pictures of this one, we have almost no dimensions. The next picture I got is actually out of the ESV Bible, so it's an artist's construction. and a bit too much influenced by 1990s cottage brick for my liking. I remember seeing houses look very much like that. But it it does say in scripture that when the foundation was laid, that the people wept. And the scholars debate as to whether, did they weep because finally, foundation, or did they weep, most scholars seem to think because it was so poor in comparison to Solomon's temple that had come before it. So that one lasted a couple of hundred years and then a guy named Herod, we call that Zerubbabel's temple or the second temple. Uh, A guy named Herod, uh, decided to use those foundations and build a huge temple, and this one's called Herod's Temple. This is the one that um, Jesus was familiar with, the one that we meet often in the New Testament. And you can see you thought Solomon's Temple was big, like uh, Herod's Temple, huge, 35 acres of space. I marked out on here, you see with the masking tape, this is the original size of the tabernacle, the holy, that little bit where Elizabeth is there, it's only 15 feet by 15 feet. This is 30 feet by 15 feet. Very small. These ones are huge. Uh, ostentatious. This one was 15 feet high, this tabernacle. So, uh, Herod's temple was 170 feet high. That's 17 storeys. Bigger than any building in Hobart. So, um, so that's what's happened. Uh, there's another temple mentioned uh, in Ezekiel, and we'll get to that later. But this is the temple, Herod's temple. What's the next slideshow, show, Dennis? Uh, This is a a model, if you go to Israel, you can go to the Museum of Israel, you'll see this model of first century Jerusalem and you can see how it absolutely dominated the landscape. It was huge. So while there were many buildings that came after the tabernacle of various sizes and bigger furniture, more ornate, a bigger size, you can see the sizes there, uh, all my attention this morning is going to be on the tabernacle for three reasons first of all this was the only one that was initiated by god god said i want you to build this second is it's the only one that was designed by god he he laid out the exact dimension that it was going to be 15 by 15 it's not an invention by man it's an invention by god god said i want it to be this size and He actually said to moses as you read that i'll show you the pattern so it's not as even as if even we think that maybe Moses was given a written description but probably he was given some kind of vision like a 3D model of saying this is exactly the way I want it to be and to their credit it was constructed exactly that way. And thirdly because the book of Hebrews tells us that this tabernacle, no, none of those other temples but the tabernacle was a copy of a heavenly reality. So what I gain from that is, if we examine the things that happen in the tabernacle, they have relevance because there's an eternal heavenly, uh, oh, well, this is a model of something that's eternal and heavenly. heavenly. In fact, the writer of the Hebrews, uh, when you think about it, was familiar with all those other temples. He was contemporary with Herod's temple, but, it, but in talking about those heaven realities, uh, if you look in Hebrews chapter 9 and chapter 10, you'll see he goes back to the tabernacle and talks about the tent and so on. So that's what we're going to talk about. Uh, the first remarkable thing about that, and which I get from Exodus 25, is that God wants to dwell with us. I'm going to dwell with you. That's remarkable, isn't it? We have a creator God who is in perfect community. It's later revealed that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet he desires not only to create man as an act of love, but also to have fellowship with him, to dwell with him, to actually uh, be with them. That's, not, that's something we might expect from God if we know the Bible at all because you'll know in the Garden of Eden he walked with Adam. Uh, later people, Noah and uh, Enoch are said to walk with God. And I love this verse, it talks about Abraham, this is God speaking, he says, you Israel my servant, Jacob whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham my friend. That's just a lovely relational uh, expression isn't it? that tells us something about God. It tells us something about uh, the the kind of person he is. And we might think when we look at his holiness and so on, he's so other than us, and yet God wants to dwell with us and wants to have a personal relationship with us. Uh, The second thing we we, we note about the tabernacle is that it was where it was to be situated. Again, this was no accident, but maybe the next slide will show us, uh, Dennis, that the tabernacle was right in the middle of the camp of Israel. Does that tell us something about where God wants to be in our lives, in the lives of the people of Israel, was to be right in the center. No one could ignore it, it was to be the focus of attention. God was to be the focus of attention because they were to be His people and He was to lead them. Now the strange thing about this, and we're going to have a little diagram here, but often in relationship, and I don't know if you've observed this, but often people in relationship want to have close proximity to each other when you're going together, for example. Now, I happened to observe this the other day, there was a barbecue and I saw a young couple together cooking a barbecue. I won't embarrass them, let's, 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 let's call them Jen and Peter. <laughs> they were intertwined as they were cooking this barbecue, which is probably possibly the most impractical way to cook sausages, but, but they managed it. So often with relationship, we're looking for proximity, we wanna be close to those people, but, but you look at the temple. Uh, look at the tabernacle and you say well the camp of Israel was camped outside and how many entrances are there there's only one and it's at the opposite end for where God's presence is which was the holy of holies so there's distance between God and between man even though he says he wants to dwell with them so why was that well that's because there's a problem um in terms of a human beings relationship with God and that is that God is perfectly holy and sinless and I don't know about you but I find that that I sin that I break God's law on a regular basis and so for me to be unholy and have a relationship with a holy God is impossible that, but God has, has made a way and made a way through the tabernacle and so you would have seen on that clip the first thing you come to is this bronze altar And the idea was that in terms of approaching God, uh, something needs to happen first. We need an intermediary, or we need a mediator that will mediate between unholy people, human beings and God. And so that was the place of the priests. So what would happen on that altar is that sacrifices would be offered, animal sacrifices. And the deal was that as human beings, because we sin constantly, There would be constant sacrifices uh, going in on that place of animals and they would take the place of the human beings who should die because of their proximity to God and so there were regular sacrifices and there were also personal sacrifices so you and I might come because we've we'd broken God's law in some way or we've um, broken one of his cleanliness laws that he's very clear about we would come up to the priest at that brazen altar the altar of burnt offering and we'd say, I'd like to offer a sacrifice. And we'd bring with us whatever was stipulated. So it might be a lamb or it might be a, some other animal. And we would place our hand on the head of that animal. And by doing that, we were saying that the animal is our representative. He represents us. What's going to happen to that animal represents what should happen to us. And then we would, uh, the person who owns this animal, who brings it for sacrifice, quite costly, it wouldn't be a cheap animal, it wouldn't be one that's of poor quality, it would be the highest quality, Uh, it would be slaughtered by that person, it would be dismembered and it would be handed to the priest and then the priest would burn that offering up and that would be an acceptance of God and so only in that way could God dwell with the people of Israel. The priests themselves, if you read through Leviticus, they couldn't just do anything either in terms of taking that sacrifice they had to put on special clothes they had to have special washings even when they emptied the ash out of that uh, altar uh, it couldn't just be done in one motion they had to go and wash and put on clean clothes and then do it and deposit it so God was very clear I want a relationship with you I want to dwell with you but this is how it happens this is how it has to happen so you see the laver behind that's for the washing of the priest and then behind that we have that Little section called the Holy Place. This all happens in this little section. This thirty by fifteen section, and uh, we look inside there, and we'll find some pieces of furniture. Uh, that's the coverings, as Rod talked about. Four different coverings. We'll go to the next one. Okay, magnificent, magnificent. Gold everywhere. Gold on the walls. Gold on the the lamp. The lampstand there was made of beaten gold. A gold table for bread. And incense and ornate tapestries. Those tapestries they look different in every picture that you see but they're of cherubs of the angels uh, that are with God in heaven and so it's generally understood that this gold section which is the holy of holies and then later we'll uh, sorry yeah the holy of holies and this holy this section here that whole tent section was meant to represent heaven, heaven come to earth. I, every time I think of it I think of that song as uh, you know you didn't want heaven Without me, so you brought heaven down. The sanctuary is an idea of heaven coming down to earth. And so, all gold inside, but where it actually touches the earth, uh, it's silver. It's that meeting between heaven and earth. And everything outside it, which is earthly, is represented by bronze. So, the altar's bronze, the labour's bronze, the utensils are bronze. But gold, only the very best, is uh, appropriate for God. So in that place, uh, only the priest could go in, nobody else, just the priest, and they would tend to those various three things that were there, decent sized space, but only three things, only three pieces of furniture. So there's that huge lamp stand, uh, which judging by the picture there, looks about five or six feet, Uh, may have been three or four or five, Uh, but of course there are no windows in there. So it serves a very practical purpose in that you need light But does anyone imagine that that's the only meaning of it, that God was being very practical in, well, we need a light fitting there. No. There are all sorts of representations, but what is important to note is light represents God. And that light was not on for 24 hours a day or out eight hours a day, it was perpetually on. And kind of an indication that God's home. He's there. God is always there, always approachable. Always ready to hear from his people, and he is the source of light. Which, when you get through to the New Testament, the time of Jesus, this all becomes apparent. On the right, there is a table of show bread. Most of the pictures I've seen are just a plain table, just like coffee table size, with twelve loaves of bread on them. And these twelve loaves of bread were baked every week, and they were placed on the Sabbath in that uh, holy place, and then on the Sabbath uh, on the next. Day before the sabbath they were replaced with fresh bread so no one no one actually ate them while they're in there they were just a symbol again but again a symbol of perpetualness always there the bread's always there God's always sustaining his people Uh, 12 because of the 12 tribes of Israel probably but he's always providing he's always providing there's never a moment where there's 11 loaves or 10 or 9 or his hand is short Uh, he's always providing and then there's a table of incense too. And this incense was a special uh, concoction. No one was able to use it for any other purpose. Again, at pain of being cut off from Israel. And this incense flowed. It must have been beautiful in there. Only the priest got to see it, but it must have been beautiful in there. The smell of the incense. Again, there's something uh, very aesthetically pleasing about that. Something beautiful about that. The smell of the incense. Uh, the oil of oil being, uh, burning there on the lampstands. The, the loaves of bread. Um, but all of this uh, was taken very seriously and there were various uh, regulations around it. But it tells us something about God, that the incense represents prayers. Uh, this t- it tells us this in the New Testament. Prayers are offered up to God. And that also was a necessary part for, to be in relationship with God, that you had to have this two-way relationship. The prayers, it was accepted, would be offered up from Israel because God wasn't that interested in just the externals although it might seem that from Leviticus. But if you read through the whole Testament, there's a lot of times where God says, I don't care about those sacrifices. Unless you're willing to to be faithful and obedient to me, the sacrifices mean nothing of their own. But yet they were important. Uh, Behind that um, cherubim um, veil was this uh, little section here, the Holy of Holies, just a little 15 by 15 square and only one piece of furniture in that. This is the Ark of the Covenant. If you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you'll be very familiar with it. Um, It's become a kind of iconic piece of furniture, but its purpose was quite different and the way it activated was quite different. You'll see there's two cherubim, again, on the top there, hammered gold, facing each other with their heads lowered. This is to indicate the very presence of God. So uh, in in the Bible, it tells us a couple of times, it says that God dwells above or between the cherubim that's his situation in heaven and so this is a depiction of heaven itself God sitting above the cherubim his presence underneath there it's a box basically it's a box four foot by three and a half feet something like that and in that box you would have noticed from the clip are the two stones of the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses there's a golden jar of manna which was the the stuff that God sent to sustain the people of Israel in the time they were in the wilderness and also the branch of an almond tree, which uh, had a bud at the end of it. Um, it's probably too much to go into what that is. So I can explain it to you afterwards if you like. But uh, that little room, this little room was only entered into once in the entire year. And by one person alone. The priests who were allowed in the, in the holy place were not allowed in the most holy. Only once a year was a priest, high priest allowed to come in here. And if he came in here in the wrong way, he would be dead. We don't approach the presence of God in a light way. And so that person would have to come in with the blood of an animal and he would offer a sacrifice each year for his own sins and those of his tribe and for the whole nation. And so he would come and that little tabletop, if you like, is called, uh, people in the old days called it the mercy seat. It's not actually a seat at all. So it's a bit confusing when you call something a mercy seat, but it meant seat in the sense of Canberra being the seat of power it's the place where mercy is found so often in modern versions they call it the atonement cover so this is the cover and really the high priest stood between heaven between a holy god and then below him was the ten commandments was the law of god which he could not satisfy and here in the middle was god's provision this atonement cover where blood would be poured out and the sins of israel would be forgiven so A thousand years, a thousand years they were making those sacrifices. And you wonder why the detail. Rod says, Why the detail? And the detail is amazing. But I wonder in the workplace, I wonder why there are workplace manuals. I think that what happens, happens in this place because we don't have workplace manuals. things get slacker and slacker over time because nobody goes back to the manual and what was once a a ten-step process becomes a two-step process and we say we won't worry about that and sometimes that happened in Israel too even with these meticulous rules. Like there's a moment when the temple, um, when David has in mind uh, this temple to house the Ark of the Covenant, he says, well get the priest, let's get that equipment down from the tabernacle and we'll, we'll bring it up to Jerusalem and so there was a stipulated way in which that was to happen. And so uh, all this stuff was put up. The Ark of the Covenant, uh, that box there, was put on a cart and was taken. And then the cart stumbled. The, yeah, the animal stumbled and the cart uh, went to one side and the Ark started to move and it was going to topple and hit the ground. So a priest by the name of Uzzah puts out his hand to steady the Ark. And what happened? He was struck dead. He was struck dead. No one was allowed to touch uh, the ark even the priests weren't allowed to see it had to be covered when it was moved we had another occasion where a couple of priests Nadab and um well, what's his the other one's name was it Byram sorry Abihu um, gave fire to God in in with the right implements but in the wrong way and what happened to them Kath they were consumed by fire they were, they were also killed God was very specific about the way in which he would be worshipped. Yes, I want to dwell with you, but it has to be done in this way. Sin is very, is very, very bad. An animal has to die for sin. Your precious animal has to die. It will cost you something when you sin. And if you want to have a relationship with God, that's the way it should be. So over the next um, thousand years, these sacrifices were offered in the tabernacle, they were offered in Solomon's temple, they were offered in Zerubbabel's temple, they were offered in Herod's temple. For over a thousand years, probably 1500 years, these things were offered. And Israel may not have known the full reason for it, but they knew that God had to be at the center of their worship. And they knew that God wanted to dwell with them, but it had to be on his terms. And they knew that these sacrifices had to be offered and they knew that God was very very holy so as I said the Herod's Temple was the one where Jesus came to and Jesus said something very interesting which I think uh, again is is no mistake in John chapter 2 turn over with me if you would so we have Jesus born into a family uh, that also observes all of these laws went to the temple, provided the sacrifices, this is uh, again Jerusalem in the, in the time of Jesus. But in John chapter 2, Jesus came into one of those courts of Herod's temple uh, and by the time it came to Herod's temple, it wasn't quite so simple. So it was an area for Gentiles to go into who could go no further. Then there was an area where women could go but no further and then the men. This wasn't something that was involved in the tabernacle at all. But it is true that in that area for the Gentiles was the only place a non-Jew could come and pray to God. A very, again, a sacred place. But what happened is uh, the Jews of the time decided this is the place that they would have their marketplace. This is the place where they would sell the animals. This is the place they'd do their money changing. And this place full of noise and pandemonium and animal manure uh, was the place, was supposed to be a place of prayer and Jesus is outraged at this, that's the context of these verses and he braids a whip and he takes those people out. Anyway, the people are slightly surprised by this and in turn, verse 17, uh, his disciples remembered that this in the Old Testament it said, zeal for your house will consume him. But the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us as to your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Look at the size of the temple. Destroy this. In three days I'll raise it up. The Jews said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he, Jesus, was speaking of the temple of his body. John is indicating to us here that on the arrival of Jesus was a tremendous change. The presence of God would no longer be just in the temple, or in in fact, in the temple. The temple would be destroyed in another 30-odd years. But the presence of God now was existing in this Jesus Christ. The presence of God was now in this man, Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verse 14, Jordan quoted this in the first um, talk. John says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, Now that word dwelt is the same word tabernacle tabernacled among us john again is giving us an indication you remember the tabernacle jesus tabernacle jesus is the tabernacle and we saw his glory he said glory is the only begotten from the father full of grace and truth god became flesh god became the temple jesus christ became the lamb that was sacrificed john was able to say here's the lamb of god that takes away the sin of the world But he was also the high priest that offered the value of that blood. He was also the light of the world. He was also the bread of life. Do you see how those people who had been sacrificing for years and years, and those disciples, would would cotton on to those things? Say, this is the one. This is the Messiah. This is the Holy One. The presence of God dwells in him. He was not only those things, but he was a prophet like Moses. He was a king like David. He was everything That they were looking for and so uh, jesus could say uh, when they said show me the father he said look at me if you've seen me you've seen the father and all of god's promises are amen in him all of those pictures come to their fruition in the person of jesus christ and so if we look at hebrews um, chapter nine these are a great couple of chapters to read through in relation to the tabernacle, in relation to its purpose and the fulfillment and the heavenly realities that lie, lie behind it. From verse 6, he says, when these things have been prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship, but into the second only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed, while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. In conscience since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Not daily, not weekly, not yearly, eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling, those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Why the rules? Why the tabernacle? Why the gold? To point to Jesus Christ. So that he could say come to me you people who are weary you people who are burdened down and i will give you rest there is only one way and it's not through the blood of animals today and i would say to you if you're a visitor here today or you're a young person or you're someone who's heard these messages a million times there is only one way to have a good relationship with the father who created all things and that's through jesus christ only one way. there are not a multitude, there are a multitude of religions, but there is only one way. And if you want peace in your life, and if you want joy in your life, these are all the things that God promises through a relationship with Him. I want to share with you a, a verse, and maybe we could turn open to this in First Peter chapter two. Peter was a close associate. Of Jesus Christ and he had plenty of time to reflect on who Jesus is but it also widens out our understanding of the temple because remember I said that when the person put his hand on that sacrifice he identified with that person the same thing is happens with Jesus Christ that when we put our trust in him we identify with him he takes our place Peter says this in 1st um, Peter 2 uh, I'm, looking a I'm looking for the bit I'm looking for coming to him as uh, a living stone where's that ah oh, verse 4 that's it I was looking down at verse 20 so oh, slide 21 I see all right coming to him as a living stone which has been rejected by men but choice and precious in the sight of God you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that Christ is the cornerstone and we, those who believe in him, are stones being built on that cornerstone into a temple inhabited by God. The presence of God is not just in Jesus Christ but in us as his people. Now it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, I said it's important for us to come to Jesus Christ if we don't know him. But the people that Peter was talking to already knew him. They already had put faith in him. Just look closely at the terminology, coming to him, coming to him. That's something that is, it's a participle. It's something that's happening. One of the, um, I wonder if it's got it here. Yeah, One of the lexicons I looked up, looked at that phrase, coming to him. It says it indicates a close, and because it's a present participle, a habitual approach, an intimate association. So we don't just come to Christ once. We come to Christ regularly, just as regularly as uh, you know, the tabernacle might make us believe, that this is a habitual thing as Christians that we come to Christ. And if we understand that we are, you think about each person here being, and the metaphor is mixed, he talks about living stones because a stone in itself is quite dormant, isn't it? But living stones, another place that says we're growing up into a temple. There's an indication that this is an onward movement of Christian people. And if you ever thought that Christianity is just something, uh, you know, I say a prayer, I accept Jesus into my life and that's it. That's a totally false concept of what Christianity is. Christianity is coming to Christ daily, trusting in Him, believing in Him, looking for His guidance, just as that, um, you know, that pillar of cloud would move, looking for His guidance. So it's got to change the way we do things, hasn't it? If that happens, if we are a temple of God being built up that way, hasn't it got to change things? Well the whole of the New Testament in explaining says it does. Paul says it's going to change the way you use your body because if your body is part of this temple of the Holy Spirit, then he says you can't involve yourself in in a moral acts because you're joining yourself you're joining something holy God with something uh totally foreign to him so it's going to change the way you view your body and the way that you use your your body so think about that in the way that you think about life generally and the things that you do think about how you use your body in a holy way it's going to change the way you view other people and the way you view the church because you could view this like a place where we just come on a Sunday and have a chat and we meet together and we hear some good things. But in Hebrews chapter 10, it goes through those glorious things, these amazing things that, that Christ has sat down at the right hand of God, that he's delivered his blood, that we have eternal redemption of our sins. And then he goes on to something quite, might seem quite banal by comparison. I'll quote it because my lens of my glasses have fallen out. But he says, don't forget the gathering of yourselves together as some have the custom. You think he's just gone from these heights. And yet the the writer of Hebrews sees these things as very connected, that encouraging each other, caring for one another, building one another up is actually an effect of our understanding the holiness of God dwelling within us. And so we should have a real care for the people around us that we are building them up. that The temple of God, and we've been built in holiness so we're becoming a more pure people, the people that can see that we're something different and also that we're building each other up and encouraging each other. And surely it's going to change the way we view the commandments because there weren't just 10 of them and they didn't just exist in the Old Testament. There are commandments in the New Testament which might come as a surprise. But I don't know about you, but I think in our Western society we're so individualised uh, it's very easy for us to drop those things out. And I've heard people say, yeah, I know Jesus says to be baptised, but, you know, I really feel that it's not that important to be baptised with water. Jesus says, be baptised, that's a commandment of God. Why would we view that as being just an everyday thing? Can you imagine if you were back there in the tabernacle and you go, yeah, I don't think it matters if I go in and, and do that. Jack's not here today, I'll, I'll change the oil in the, in the lampstand. I'll take a piece of that bread because I didn't bake any today. Can you imagine? You, you can't imagine it because it would be unthinkable. What about these commands of God? To make disciples. Go and make disciples, he says. Yeah, it's not really my thing. That's a commandment of God. Uh, the Bible's view of divorce and remarriage. You go, yeah, yeah. I know what God says about divorce, but you haven't met my wife. It's, it's totally different for me. You see, often uh, so many of these commandments of God are inconvenient. To forgive others, to forgive others is a principle that's uh, emblazoned here in the tabernacle uh, and through the words of Jesus Christ. But we find it very hard to forgive. It's another command of God, forgive as you have been forgiven. So I wonder if you take this picture away. This is, is this where God is in your life? Is God in the centre of your life? So when you make decisions, or when you think about where life's going and when you think about how you're going to use your time this week, it's, well, God's at the centre. What, what would He have me do? Are we sufficiently respectful of the holiness of God or we tend to view those things as ordinary? Do we... Do we recognise that we have such a privileged position to be in the the presence of God? A high priest on one day can go in the presence of God. We can go into that presence of God boldly and we can ask for forgiveness and we can receive grace from him. And is your life so fixed on him, so fixed that when he says move, you're ready to move. When he says stay, you're ready to stay. Stay. I pray that will be the case for each of us. Let me give thanks to our God. Father, you are so holy. It is an amazing thing that you want a relationship with us and that you are so graceful and so forgiving. And we look with uh, disdain upon the people of Israel as they continually rejected you or forgot about you or put you in second place. And we are guilty of the very same things. Father, we ask your forgiveness for the times that we do not view you sufficiently highly, that we rush through our prayers instead of recognising what a privilege it is to speak to you in prayer, that we don't give you first place in our lives and we think about all other considerations and we squeeze time in for you, we don't give you the best of our time or the quality of our time. Forgive us for those things, Father, we pray. We thank you for the example we have here and your glory that you are there sitting above the cherubs, that we have entry to the holy place and that we can speak to you of our most intimate concerns and that you care for us. We thank you that you guide us and you give us commandments that we know of uh, value to ourselves, that we benefit, that there is more happiness in giving than receiving, that as we bless others, we are blessed, that we build up others, we are built up. As we forgive others, we are forgiven. We thank you for those lessons. I pray, Father, that as a church and as individuals, Uh, We shall all of us keep that picture in our mind of you being at the center of our life. As you lead, we will follow. Father, lead us. um, May we bless others outside this place. May we invite others to come to the living stone who is perfect. And may we thank you for the redemption that was obtained by us through Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross. For those glorious things, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.